All right, I'm going to try to read slowly and clearly because this is a long one. <laughs> so 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 to 25. The Zivites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hikala, which faces Jessimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziv with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hikala, facing Jessimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learnt that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ashimelech the Hittite and Abishiah, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishiah. So David and Abishiah went to the army of, by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear, and I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die, or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army, to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord, the king? Someone came to destroy your lord, the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If however people have done it, may they be cursed before the lord. They have driven me today from my share in the lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground, far from the presence of the lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again, 
surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and, and faithfulness. The Lord deliver you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Marianne. When someone has hurt you, how do you respond? You know, one of the most destructive lies that is whispered into human hearts is that if someone hurts you, you'll feel better if you take revenge. And part of the reason why that lie is so effective as it's whispered into our hearts is because of what we see in movies. You know, most of the great movies and great stories that we watch or that we read, if you think about it, they're revenge stories. They're stories about people who take revenge. So you have the classic, The Count of Monte Cristo. Dante says, I must have my revenge. You have, if you prefer something more modern, the blockbuster classic, Taken, with Liam Neeson. I will find you, and I will kill you. You know, I can't do it in his voice. Even Black Panther, Eric Killmonger, is waiting his whole life for a chance to take revenge. Dare I say, as I was thinking about it this week, even The Lion King is kind of about revenge. What you have in all these stories for little kids all the way to great classics are entertaining stories about people who are going to seek revenge. And what happens, be it ever so subtle, as we watch and as we're entertained by these stories, is that we're formed as a people into thinking that taking revenge is actually noble and strong. But real life is not like the movies. And revenge is not often yielding the kind of results that we see in stories like that. Now, we're in a series of the life of David, and today we come to this great passage, this long story that Marianne read, 1 Samuel 26. And when you read this story, you notice that it has all the makings of a good revenge story. This could be a blockbuster. And yet, as you look at it carefully, what we learn is it's not a revenge story. It's actually a mercy story. David here in this text has an opportunity to take revenge, but instead he walks in the way of mercy. David does this because David is a man after God's own heart. And David knows that walking in the way of Jesus, following after God, is the way of mercy. And so what I want us to consider today, the kind of big questions that are out in front of us are, should you, when you're hurt, when you're wronged, should you show mercy? And if so, how should you do it? How can you become a person who shows mercy? And that's what this passage is about. So let's look at it together and using the following three headings as our guide. The first thing I want to show you is what David knew. Then second, what David did. And then third and finally, how David did it. So what David knew, what David did, and how David did it. So first, what is it that David knew? And here's what David knew, that taking revenge never actually works. You think that you're going to feel better, 
But in that moment of taking revenge, you don't find peace. You actually experience deeper pain. Now, what is taking revenge? You know, how do we define it? Revenge is hurting someone because they've hurt you. It's responding in kind after you've been hurt. So when someone hurts you or something or someone that you love, the very natural impulse of your heart is to want to get even, to settle the score. That's why when we talk about taking revenge, we often use the phrase, an eye for an eye. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. And oftentimes we seek to take revenge in the same ways that we've been hurt. That's what revenge is. And in this story, David has an opportunity to take revenge. It's actually there in verse 8. But before we come to verse 8, we have to look at the larger context of 1 Samuel. Because until we see the bigness of this story, we're going to miss the force of what's happening in our passage. So here's what you have. Saul was king of Israel. And David was a young man. He was very successful. He was very popular. He was very attractive. And as a young man, David was hired to work in Saul's court to serve the king. And initially, Saul sees this young man, David, who's bubbly and bright and has all this potential, and Saul is very drawn to him. And they have a kind of father-son, mentor-mentee relationship, very close. But as time goes on, eventually, as some of you know, David kills Goliath, and all of Israel begins praising David and singing songs about David, and Saul, the older king, starts to get jealous. He starts to feel envy. And what was initially this warm father-son kind of relationship turns into Saul having bitterness, rage, hatred, and ultimately, Saul is so threatened by David that he tries to kill him. And so a couple of chapters earlier, one day when they're in the court of the king, Saul has his spear, and David is aside playing music. He was a great instrumentalist. And David is playing music, and Saul literally takes his spear, and he says, I will pin David to the wall. And he hurls the spear across the room right at David. David ducks, keeps playing. Well, a couple nights go by and the same thing happens again. Second time, Saul takes his spear. I'll pin David to the wall, hurls the spear. David ducks, but this time David says, you know, this is not good. I'm gonna leave. And he leaves the presence of Saul and he runs for his life and he goes into the wilderness and he's hiding. He's become a kind of refugee. He's, because of violence, fleed his home for safety. And so here's now David in the wilderness, but Saul hasn't given up. So Saul, in our story, takes 3,000 soldiers to go and hunt for David in the wilderness to try to find him and kill him. And that's where our story picks up. Now, before we get back to the text, though, let me just say, the way 1 Samuel is presenting the narrative, David is guiltless. David has done nothing to deserve Saul's unjust pursuit of him. The way the narrative is presented is that Saul is in the wrong and David is in the right. David is doing nothing to deserve Saul's treatment of him. That's the story. So come back with me, if you would, to verse 8. David and one of his loyal soldiers, Abishai, found out where Saul is sleeping. He's out in the wilderness hunting David down. They discover where Saul is. So David says to Abishai, let's go down into the camp of the enemy. Let's go down into the camp of Saul, and we'll see what happens. So David and Abishai kind of make their way down to where Saul and his soldiers are. They're stepping over sleeping soldiers. They get all the way to the center, and Saul is there fast asleep. And look at verse 8. 
Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Abishai says, this is it. This man who's been hunting you down unfairly, this man who's tried to kill you, God has given him into your hand. David, you don't even have to do the deed. I'll do it for you. One quick spear, we're out of here. Easy peasy. And that's what Abishai says. Now, if David followed the way of the movies and took his revenge, what he would have said to Abishai is, go for it. You take that spear, that very same spear that previously was hurled at David, Go ahead and take that spear and pin him to the... Saul, I'll show you. You want to pin me to the wall? I'll pin you to the ground. And that's what revenge would have looked like if David chose to take it. Now, for most of you, opportunities to take revenge don't look like you coming across your enemies with spears lying next to them. But what happens in your life? Because make no mistake, even though this exact kind of situation will likely never happen to you, All of us, all the time, face situations in which people hurt us. People do things that are evil and unjust and wrong, and they cut us in the very center of our souls. This is when people insult you or demean you with their words, and the natural instinct of your heart is to insult them right back. This is when a colleague at work takes credit for something that you've done or does something to damage your reputation. So you look for subtle or even not so subtle ways to damage theirs. Someone gossips about you behind your back. And so you look for an opportunity to return gossip on their behalf. Maybe there's a relationship in your life, someone that you've been especially close to, and they betray you. They let down their side of the commitment. They fail you. And so what happens is even if outwardly you pretend like everything is okay, maybe British politeness is setting in, inwardly you are rooting for their fall. You hope to hear bad news has befallen them. What's that? Those are all ways that we take revenge in the real parts of our lives. And some of you might be saying, well, why not take it? I mean, if revenge is the natural impulse of the heart, if there's people doing bad stuff out there, why not take revenge? If people hurt you, why shouldn't they pay for it? And here's part of the answer, and this is what David knew. It is good to be angry at injustice. We should never minimize wrongdoing. But what revenge is, is the appropriate anger that we feel at injustice growing to an inordinate proportion where you take matters into your own hands and you become judge, jury, and executioner. And the problem with revenge is it never actually works. That's what David knew, that when you take revenge, it doesn't bring peace. It deepens the pain. Lewis Smedes was an ethicist, and he spent most of his career researching conflict in human relationships. And he recognized that one of the most fundamental driving forces inside of human beings is this impulse to take revenge. But what he concluded after years of research is this, quote, the problem with revenge is that it never evens the score. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. And both are stuck on that escalator as long as parity is demanded. 
and the escalator never stops. We think we're settling the score, but we're not. We're widening the chasm of hurt. That's what taking revenge does. And in the process, you actually destroy your own soul. You know, when you hold grudges and when you take revenge, even though sometimes that pain is deep, and I know it can be when you're betrayed or hurt, but that nursing of the grudge or that taking of revenge, it's like drinking rat poison and then wanting the rat to die. You're actually destroying your own soul. You're actually hurting yourself. And that's why ultimately revenge can't work. It can't. Because hate can't drive out hate. Evil can't drive out evil. You know, there's a sermon that over the years has profoundly impacted me. It is preached by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the American civil rights leader. And at one place in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, which you can find online, Dr. King says this, returning hate for hate multiplies hate and it adds a deeper darkness to a night that is already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so what we have here in this story, verse 8 specifically, David has this opportunity to get even to take revenge, but he knows it won't work. He knows that if he says to Abishai, thrust that spear into his head, the pain is deeper and his soul will be more destroyed. That's what David knew. But now we turn our attention to see, well, what did David do? If David didn't take revenge, what did he do? And the answer is he showed Saul mercy. He spared his life. He could have killed him. No one would have blamed him. He could have gotten away with it, but he chose not to make Saul pay. He showed him mercy. And what's really significant about this story in 1 Samuel 26 is how beautiful but also nuanced David's showing of mercy is. I find this story to be remarkably modern in how it talks about all the different details of showing mercy in real life. It would be a grave mistake to think that David showing Saul mercy is very simplistic. So let me show you a couple of things as we look at this story about what showing mercy biblically is meant to look like. Here's the first thing. Showing mercy does not mean you minimize the evil actions of another person. You know, when Abishai says to David in verse eight, let me pin him to the ground, let's get our revenge. David does not look to Abishai and say, oh, you know what? Deep down, Saul's a good guy. He's been going through a tough time. He's a little stressed out. You know, he throws spears sometimes when he gets overwhelmed, but we just have to cut him some slack. David doesn't do that. David recognizes the evil of what Saul is doing. David sees the pain that he's causing, and he never minimizes Saul's actions. Showing mercy does not mean ignoring or being passive about the evil that's in front of you. David, as he sees what Saul's doing, is able to call him out on it. And that's actually a sign of love because it's never loving to let people persist in destructive behaviors, behaviors that are hurting themselves or people around them. So mercy first never means minimizing or downplaying wrong. So what does David do? He doesn't minimize, but what does he do? He moves towards Saul with what I wanna call confrontational compassion. I promise you it's a thing. Confrontational compassion. And this is the key of biblical mercy. How do you confront 
with compassion. That's what we learn here in this story. This is what David does. It's compassion because David doesn't take Saul's life. And actually, if you read verses 18 through 20, when David speaks to Saul, David is kind, he's respectful, he's civil, he's not demeaning Saul. He's actually incredibly kind even as he spares him. So what you see on one hand is compassion. David is not taking vengeance. But on the other hand, David's actions are incredibly confrontational. So come back with me, if you would, to verse 9 and 10. In our story, Abishai says, let's get him, pin him to the ground. David says, no, we will not do that. And then, if you come down to verse 11, David says, the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to resort to violence, but take his spear and his water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David says to Abishai, we're not going to kill him, but here's what we're going to do. Grab that spear, grab his water bottle, and let's hightail it out of here. You say, well, why is David doing that? Because this is confrontational. The spear is a sign of Saul's kingship. You see, the spear is a sign of military potency. The spear is the thing that kings have to lead the army. And when David reaches down and takes Saul's spear... David is making a very public accusation against Saul. He's confronting him and saying, you are acting in such a way that is not fitting for a king. You are betraying your office and your authority. And you're doing wrong. So by taking the spear, David is making a profound public statement. And more than that, he takes the water jug. Now remember, they're in the wilderness. And this is the time before refrigeration and things like that. Water is life in the desert. And David, by taking the water jug, is basically saying, if you keep going this way, Saul, you're going to die. This is going to kill you. In other words, David, by taking spear and water jug, is making incredibly confrontational statements to Saul about the wrongness of his actions. Friends, do you see how balanced and nuanced this is? Compassion, kindness, and yet deep confrontation, calling him out and exposing him. This is mercy that David is showing to Saul. Eshaw's persisting in his rebellious ways. But here's a third thing I wanna show you. And this is especially important as you think about how mercy might look in your life. One more thing we see about the brilliance of David's showing of mercy. Showing mercy does not always mean a restoration of trust or a coming together in the relationship. It's very possible sometimes, needful, to show mercy and to maintain distance from the people who have hurt you. That's what we see in verse 21. So after David and Abishai have gone down to the camp, they've taken spear and water jug, they've left, they've gone back up onto a hill. David calls out, he says, Abner, you failed, you didn't guard the king. Saul says, is that you, David? And David basically says, what are you doing, Saul? He's very kind, he's respectful, but he confronts him. So if you come down to verse 21, Saul responds to David and says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. You considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong. So David has confronted Saul and now Saul's apologizing. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. Come back, bring my spear, bring my water jug. Let's hug it out. And David says, no. Verse 22, have one of your servants come and get the stuff. 
But David knows, I can't go anywhere near this man. Because Saul has done this before. (laughs) This isn't the first time he tried to hunt David down. And David knows, I can show Saul mercy, but I can't get close to him. Because it's too dangerous. I can't trust him. His word is not reliable. And so David teaches us here that the showing of mercy does not mean being blind to the dangers that might await you in a fraught relationship. Mary Evans, in her really great commentary on 1 Samuel, goes so far as to say it's not just that David keeps distance, but he recognizes that a fundamental change has happened in his relationship with Saul. David used to call Saul my father, but as Mary Evans says, now he simply acknowledges him as king. Respect for the office, but loss of personal relationship. See how nuanced this is? Confrontation, compassion, not minimizing wrong, but keeping distance. Biblical mercy is beautiful and nuanced. And some of you today are wondering, well, how does this apply to my life? I've got this relationship, I've got this problem, I've got this challenge. How do I apply these principles? And the challenge with preaching is I can only be so specific. But if you have questions about personally what showing mercy can look like in your life in a very specific example, please talk to a leader in our church. Get prayer and wrestle with how these principles can be applied to the particulars of your situation. But the question that we need to ask now finally is how was David able to show mercy? How was David able to live like a person who, when he was being wronged, was able to respond mercifully? The thing that has stood out to me as stunning as I've been preparing for this sermon is how calm David is during this entire affair. He's composed, he's peaceful, he's not carried away in rage or anger. What enabled him to have such calmness in the midst of such conflict? I think the text gives us two reasons. The first, why was David able to be calm and show mercy? David had a deep confidence that God would bring justice. David had huge confidence in God. Verse nine, Abishai has said, let's destroy Saul. But David says, no, don't do that. But in verse 10, David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. That's me being played off like the Oscars. (laughs) Sorry for whoever did that. I didn't mean to make a joke. Anyway, on we go. Verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come or he'll die in battle. What's David saying? (laughs) God will get the justice. Vengeance belongs to God. So I don't need to take it, David says, because God will deal with Saul in his time and in his way. So the Lord will strike him. He'll die in battle. Something else will happen, but it's not for me to take the role of God in being judge, jury, and executioner in Saul's life. Do you see what David's saying? God is the one who has all the right and the power and the authority to give true justice. And let's be honest, when we're wronged and we're hurt, we don't always know exactly what people need. We don't always know exactly what administering justice should look like. But God does. And so David is able to not take vengeance because he knows that vengeance belongs to God. And God will deal with Saul. It's almost like Romans 12 was in David's mind, even though it was written many years later, where the Apostle Paul says, if it's possible, as far as depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
It is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so here's David on that day. Everyone's saying, take your revenge, kill Saul. And David says, I don't need to because vengeance belongs to God. He gives justice. I can show mercy because God will deal with Saul at the right time in his way, in his ever wise way. And if you know the story, that is what happens ultimately to Saul. So number one, how does David show mercy? Huge confidence in God and God's justice. But second, David is able to show mercy. David is able to be calm because he himself knows his need for mercy. One of my favorite things about reading 1 Samuel is in 1 and 2 Samuel, you see the life of David. You know, the stories of David's life, what he did. But when you go from 1 Samuel to the book of Psalms, what you often get is a picture in the Psalms of what David is feeling. 1 Samuel describes what's happening, but the Psalms reveal the feelings and the inner life of David as those events unfold. It's a beautiful thing to see. And so you read 1 Samuel 26, and we see what David's doing, and you ask the question, what's going on on the inside? What's David feeling? And we know the answer. Psalm 57. Psalm 57, we know, was written by David when Saul was hunting him down in the wilderness. And let me read to you the very first line of Psalm 57. David prays, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. Oh, my friends, do you see what's happening? David is alone in the wilderness. Saul is unjustly coming to get him. So David sits down to pray. He's in the presence of God. He cries out in prayer in this moment of being unjustly hunted down. And I would expect David to kneel in prayer before God and say, God, you know Saul's coming to get me. He's being unfair. So break his teeth, crush him, thwart his plans. Give me justice. And David doesn't pray that. David, when he sits down in the presence of God and he's being unjustly hunted down, David cries out in prayer, God, have mercy on me. Why? Because David knows that he'll never show mercy if he doesn't know that he has a need for mercy. You see, David recognizes in the depth of his dark heart that if God isn't merciful to him, that he's gonna be consumed by bitterness and rage and jealousy and vengeance too. David knows that apart from the mercy of God, David's gonna end up just like Saul. And he sees that in his heart. So even as he feels in himself this temptation to get even and settle the score, he cries out, God, show me mercy. And God is a God of mercy. God answers that prayer because God is a God of mercy. When God introduced himself to Moses, this is when God is giving self-revelation of who he is. God says to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That statement is like God's bio on Instagram. If you want to know the one way God defines himself, he says, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so David is crying out to this God, give me mercy. Keep me from turning into the very thing that is hunting me down. 
Keep me from the rage and the jealousy and the envy and the bitterness and the hatred that is coming at me in the form of Saul. God, have mercy on me. And do we have a God who answers that prayer? We absolutely do. And we need to look no further than to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, we see the ultimate example of mercy. As Jesus dies on that cross, we see mercy in its most ultimate form. What is Jesus' death on the cross? It is confrontational compassion. You see, on the cross, as Jesus dies in your place and for your sin, Jesus is at one time confronting you. And he's saying, look at the ugliness and the darkness and the evil of sin. It's so vile, I had to die for it. There was no other way. Confrontation. But on the other hand, the cross is about compassion. Because Jesus dies in your place. He takes the punishment that you deserved upon himself. And so the cross is the ultimate example of how God meets us in mercy. Confronting our sin while showing us grace. This is what this means for us today. As I'm preaching, some of you realize, you know, I've been a lot unlike David. I've had opportunities to take revenge and I've taken it. I've not acted like David did. There's mercy for you in the cross. There's grace and healing for you in the finished work of Jesus. Others of you listening to this sermon say, no, I'm actually a lot like Saul. I'm the one doing the hunting. I'm unkind and mean because I feel threatened or jealous of people. There's mercy and grace for you in the Lord's anointed, the ultimate Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. We're gonna come now to the Lord's table and celebrate communion. This table, as Jesus sets it for us, is a sign of the mercy that meets us because of his death. How do you need mercy today? Mercy abounds in the cross. And as we are those who experience mercy, we become a community that can show God's mercy in the world. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table. Our God, thank you for meeting us today in this powerful story where David could have shown revenge but chose the way of mercy. Thank you for reminding us of our need for mercy. And so today as we come to the cross, as we celebrate this meal that you've given us, this supper, we pray that you would meet us in overwhelming mercy, that in the very depth of our dark hearts that you would shine your light of kindness and grace, that you would confront us where we need confronting and that you would overwhelm us with your compassion in our areas of shame and guilt. God, meet us now, we pray, for your glory as we come to seek you at this table doing so in Jesus' name. Amen.